0: Now, today we're going to talk about new immigrants, new workers, and new women in the first decade or so of the 20th century. Now, it's customary for uh, historians to describe America in almost any period as, quote-unquote, a new nation. The word new is constantly being used. And America as a nation is obsessed with the new in almost everything, But I think it's fair to say that America, in the early part of the 20th century, the first decade of the 20th century, was truly a new nation in many respects. There's no exaggeration here. And I think there's three important ways to discuss this. First, through the new immigrants and their lives. Then through the new workers and their lives. And finally, through the new women or the new woman, and their or her lives. But before we do this, we can't understand the new America of the early part of the 20th century without discussing the explosive growth of American industry and the ways in which it affected immigrants and their lives, workers and their lives, and women and their lives. Now, American industry during the late 19th and early early 20th centuries, changed drastically. And those changes changed America drastically. American industry got bigger, much bigger during this time, and more efficient, much more efficient. Specifically, by 1910, America's factory output was the largest in the world, and the largest by far, two times the nearest competitor, which was Germany. Now, why did it grow like this? Well, there were many reasons. And in history, of course, there are always many reasons. First, technological innovations led to industrial growth in America. For example, uh, the electric light which of course could power industry, uh, provide transportation. Uh, This was an American invention. It was uh, perfected by Thomas Edison, uh, working in the state of New Jersey, where I spent so many happy years. There was also the internal combustion engine, which of course made automobiles possible. Automobiles, as we discussed earlier, uh, the key American product of the 20th century, the way steel was the key American product of the late 19th century. Uh, automobiles stimulated many other industries, obviously the steel industry, also the oil industry, the glass industry. Uh, so automobiles really stimulated the entire economy, and the internal combustion engine made them possible. And automobiles were not invented by an American, Henry Ford, but they certainly were perfected by Henry Ford. Now also, transportation innovations also led to industrial growth in America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, railroads obviously had been invented by the early 1900s, but now they were everywhere. They made shipping long distances possible. And they opened the huge American internal market, the domestic market, Americans buying from Americans, uh, for industrial and consumer products. And this new demand, in turn, stimulated new industry. In other words, it stimulated economic growth. It stimulated mass production and, thanks to transportation innovations, mass distribution. Also, corporate consolidations stimulated industrial growth in the United States. Mergers are the key, uh, 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 the, the key device here. Uh, Two companies competing with each other, merging into a larger, more efficient, and uh, probably more profitable company. The biggest merger was the great 1901 merger uh, of of, of various steel companies, uh, most notably Andrew Carnegie's Carnegie Steel Company, into what became known in 1901 as U.S. Steel. So you're creating in the American economy, a few large corporations out of a great many smaller ones. A more efficient, if more unfair, situation. And industrial growth in the United States was also stimulated by corporate consolidations. Now this meant both new management techniques in those corporations, and specifically the rise of the professional manager to run corporations. And what I mean by this is that uh, even as as late as the 1860s and 1870s, there was a lot of hands-on management. The person who owned the company was everywhere. He was managing the company. But by the early part of the 20th century, these companies had gotten so big that the owner was not the one who was really running them. He was paying people to run them, what we would call middle managers today, uh, people who did not own the company. They might have had some stock benefits, but they didn't own the company. And this is a tremendous change because instead of one person running it, we have a bureaucracy running the company. So you have the growth of these bureaucrats. You also have the growth of what we call R&D, research and development, not R&B, rhythm and blues, that's something else. R&D, research and development, these companies start these R&D departments to do research, to find new techniques to make themselves more efficient. Again, they become bureaucratized and rationalized and more efficient. The other revolution in corporate management was not so much in the boardroom or among the management, but right on the factory floor. And that's what we call, or have come to call, scientific management. Scientific management, which was invented and popularized by an engineer by the name of Frederick Winslow Taylor, so it's also called Taylorism, uses time and motion studies to break down worker movements on the shop floor to make them more efficient. In other words, what Taylor would do is, you know, he was uh, an engineer uh, working in a steel mill. He would say, well, it, takes, uh, it should take four steps for a worker to take a steel ingot and bring it over to this bin. Let's see if we can make it two steps. Let's see if we can make it even more efficient. Let's see if instead of him, it taking him 15 seconds to do what he has to do, let's see if we could cut it down to 10 seconds. And that five seconds that we save, if you multiply it by thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands, will save us or make us a lot of money. Of course, the best expression of this scientific management or Taylorism technique was Henry Ford's great contribution to the industrial world, the assembly line, which, of course, broke down tasks to the lowest common denominator. Now, many of you, or at least some of you, may have seen Charlie Chaplin's great film, uh, Modern Times, and the first 15 minutes or so of that film are very instructive in terms of what the assembly line does to the worker. For the owner of the factory, it makes him a lot of money, obviously, but for the worker, as you can see, or if you might remember in that film, Charlie Chaplin is a worker in a factory, and he keeps making the same motions over and over again, just very Repetitively, as he does one task, which is the classic Taylorism, one task very efficiently. And at lunchtime, the whistle blows, the assembly line stops, but Chaplin keeps making the same motions, almost in a spastic manner, because he just can't stop. And we laugh, of course, and it is funny, but it is also indicative of the dehumanizing nature of the assembly line. The assembly line is something that produces a lot of cars, a lot of products, but it also is repetitive and dehumanizing. So, By the early 1900s, American industry had used technological innovations, transportation innovations, corporate mergers, and new corporate management and production techniques to become the largest, the most productive, and the most efficient economy in the world. So, how did all of this affect the lives of immigrants? Well... Most importantly, it attracted immigrants. Between 1880 and 1920, some 23 million immigrants, as I said on Wednesday, mostly non-Protestants from Eastern and Southern Europe, came to America, most attracted by these jobs in American industry. Now, as badly paid in America as they were, and they were badly paid, they were much better off, at least economically, than they had been in Europe. They came over sometimes in entire villages, Other times there was one family member who would come over and then send for the rest of his family and then perhaps uh, the rest of his village. They were mostly from agricultural lifestyles, agricultural backgrounds. So they had difficulty adjusting to the regimented life of the industrial society where everything was on the clock. If you think of a European farming village, let's say, in the late 1800s, they operate by the sun. There may not even be a clock. People may not even own watches in that kind of society. Maybe there's one clock on a church steeple, and that's, that's about it. Uh, people, when they say in an in a, in a agricultural community in the 1890s, 2 o'clock, they may mean 215. They may mean 145. Uh, it's very different when you're working in a factory. 2 o'clock means 2 o'clock. I mean that literally and figuratively. It doesn't mean 201, it doesn't mean 202, doesn't mean 159, it means 2 o'clock. And it becomes very difficult and hard for workers from an agricultural culture, if you will, to adjust to this. Now, immigrants made up about 70% of the American industrial workforce in 1900, and they literally built America. Their lives were incredibly difficult, especially in this early formative period of American industrial capitalism. It's a brutal time to be alive. And I always feel that if you, well, if you want to see... When is the worst time to be alive in a society? It is the time of what I call industrial takeoff. When a society, when a country or a nation is industrializing rapidly and starting to take off. Uh, in Great Britain, uh, that period was the early part of the uh, 19th century. In the United States, it was really the period between around 1870 uh, and around 1930. That's when America is taking off industrially. And it needs workers, it needs bodies, and it chews up bodies, and it chews up lives uh, uh, in a very, very brutal way. So sometimes, as I'm always saying, uh, uh, and I think it's a rule of history as well, it's better to be lucky than to be good. Uh, 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 We are lucky to live in the society that we live in, uh, uh, because if we were born, most of us, most of us in this class were born between 1870 and 1930, just statistically, the vast majority of us would have disappeared into American factories and have had no chance to get an opportunity to educate ourselves or to uplift ourselves. And it's quite likely that our children would go go into the factories uh, as well. Six-day weeks, ten-hour days. It's the equivalent of, uh, of, of from nine to seven, six days a week. None of this Saturday off business. American workers during this time uh, performed incredibly dangerous work. I think a telling statistic is that 25% of U.S. steel employees were either killed or injured on the job. One out of every four had some sort of injury at a time when many states did not have workers' compensation. We'll talk a little little more about that uh, on Monday when we talk about progressivism. They also performed incredibly boring jobs. Uh, Any of you who have had summer jobs on any sort of assembly line or in factories know how boring that can be. You know, you have to think of all all the wasted minds. You know, people who could have been poets and doctors and uh, 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 musicians uh, uh, who really could have done a lot of good for society uh, uh, instead are stuck uh, on factory assembly lines. I used to belong to a literary society a few, uh, a few, few years ago, uh, and one of my friends was an elderly man uh, who I thought was absolutely brilliant, but he had no education. Uh, 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 he was very interested in literature and self-taught. Uh, he, uh, he, had, he had a high school education, uh, and he worked his entire life in a factory in Sandusky, Ohio. Uh, uh, that's what he did. Uh, he didn't have the opportunity to do anything else. And when I talked to this man, who certainly had the intellect of any Harvard PhD and could have done just as well, uh, uh, I was saddened by the fact that he had to have spent his life uh, uh, doing something that he didn't want to do, instead of something that he had the talent to do. Well, that's what happens when you're in an industrial takeoff situation in any country's history, and the United States, it's 1870 to 1830. Not a good time to be alive. Now, away from the factories, workers lived in really squalid conditions. Uh, Incredible overcrowding, six or seven to a room. Some didn't even have their own beds. Uh, Often boarders would be taken into these families uh, to make more money, uh, making their homes, of course, even more crowded. Drafty apartment buildings and houses, often with no running water. And the thing many observers remark about in their memoirs of these places is the smell. There's human and other refuse literally running in the street. Now, American industrial capitalism grew on the backs and the bodies, sometimes literally so, of the nation's immigrant population. And this leads us from the new immigrant that American industry created to the new worker that it also spawned. Now, The growth of American industry, its organization, its rationalization, what I talked about a little earlier, uh, all the corporate consolidations, the scientific management, all of this elicited an attempt at a similar degree of organization by American workers in the form, of course, of unions. But workers in America in the early part of the 20th century had a big problem. The problem was they had no economic leverage because there were just too many of them. And because their jobs mostly had become so de-skilled that almost anyone could do them. In labor relations, it's always best to be selling a scarce commodity. It's always best to be selling something that a lot of people want to buy. An example from a more recent period. When I was in graduate school in the state of New Jersey, one day I turned on my television and discovered, to my surprise, that the toll-takers on the New Jersey Turnpike, which is basically the spine of New Jersey, had gone on strike. They didn't like their working conditions, they didn't like their salaries, they were mad as hell, and they weren't going to take it anymore. So they went out on strike, and when I heard this I said, they're crazy, they're absolutely crazy. Why? Well, it's obvious. Almost anyone can do that job. It's not a skilled job. And what the New Jersey Turnpike Commission did after they struck was predictable. They hired unemployed people. They hired housewives looking to make their family a little more money. They hired students. Sometimes executives from the New Jersey Turnpike Commission would come down and take a few shifts themselves. And the strike collapsed after about a week. Not to my surprise. So it was this absence of scarcity, this buyer's market in favor of employers, that stymied attempts at labor organization in the early 1900s. So what was significant about the new worker of the early part of the 20th century then was, in my opinion, his lack of power, his lack of leverage and his consequent attempts to use the government to even the odds for him in his battle against the boss, against the employer, an uphill struggle, to be sure, since government, for the most part, at this this point in American history, either supported the employers or stayed out altogether when there was a labor management dispute, which in the context of the time was like supporting the employer. Now, we'll see next time, on Monday, when we discuss progressivism, how that struggle by workers in America to capture the government, to capture the state, to turn it to their own purposes went. And when I say the state, historians use the word the state in a very, very broad sense. They don't mean the state of New Jersey or the state of Wisconsin, unless they say so specifically. When historians use the word the state, they mean the government. They mean Federal government, state government, local government, the government. So when I'm going to be using the word the state in the future, I'm going to mean the government. If I mean the state of Wisconsin, I'll tell you. Now, in their attempts to capture the state, American workers, or to control the state, or to turn it to their own uses, American workers made some progress, but they would still have, as of, let's say, 1910, a long way to go, before government was even a neutral arbiter between bosses and workers. In the meantime, American workers attempted to confront the new power of American industrial capitalism in two ways, as symbolized by two very different unions. The first union was the American Federation of Labor, or AFL, not the American Football League. That's something else. The American Federation of Labor, which had been founded in the late 1880s uh, by a man by the name of Samuel Gompers. And the AFL was a conservative organization of skilled workers only, It made no attempt to organize the great mass of unskilled workers for the reasons that I just elucidated. Uh, uh, Gompers was a very smart man, and he understood the idea of labor scarcity. If you could, if you could organize skilled workers who were in demand, you'd have a lot more leverage than organizing unskilled workers, where there's more where that came from. So the AFL concentrated on skilled workers, and it didn't really challenge the capitalist system generally. wasn't a very political organization. It just tried to achieve gains for its workers, its members, through collective bargaining and, when necessary, through strikes. This is what we call business unionism. No politics, no grand schemes or plans, just basic wages and hours. No demands for the government to intervene in the economy. Famously, when Gompers was asked, what do you want for the American worker? He replied simply, more. Now, by the early 1900s, the AFL was the largest labor organization in America, with two million members, but that's still a small percentage of American workers. And while the conservative and and, and basically non-confrontational policies of the AFL won some gains for its members, It didn't help the great mass of American workers who were unorganized uh, and unskilled. Now, the other labor organization confronting American industrial capitalism in the early 1900s, and here the emphasis is definitely on the word confront, was the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, known popularly as the Wobblies. Now, This other smaller, about 20,000 members, so it's relatively small, American labor group was everything that the AFL was not. The Wobblies were a radical group of unskilled workers who were strong in the textile industry in the East and also in mining and lumber uh, in the West. The Wobblies rejected capitalism outright and looked to the day when workers themselves would run all industries through their slogan, One Big Union. Now, the IWW believed that there could be no permanent agreements with capitalists and very pointedly refused to actually sign contracts with them. They, they would have agreements, but they would not put their signature on a contract. Uh, uh, the IWW viewed the bosses, the employer class, almost as a separate species of human. Uh, if you look at IWW cartoons, there's almost a dehumanized quality uh, to the boss. Uh, and I've always been somewhat disturbed by them. They're only- almost racialized. Uh, uh, they're almost casting employers as, as just another kind of human being. And I always thought that if you, if you substituted the word uh, black or the substitute of the word Jew for employer or boss, it would almost sound racist. So the IWW had a tendency to demonize personally uh, anybody in the management or capitalist class. Now, speaking of class, the IWW believed that violent, ongoing class conflict was necessary for any labor progress to be made. And it lived up to its name, organizing violent strikes in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912. Lawrence, of course, is uh, uh, the town uh, named after the man who founded Lawrence University. Uh, And also in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, uh, in 1913. Both of these towns, Lawrence and Patterson, uh, were, uh, were textile mill towns, and that's what the strike was about. The IWW also resorted to overt violence blowing up government officials, almost the way a terrorist organization would. Uh, As in the case of former Idaho Governor Frank Stunenberg in 1905. Stunenberg had been an anti-IWW governor, and they got to him, basically, uh, uh, after his term ended. Uh, This crime was actually laid at the door of the IWW president at the time, a man by the name of Big Bill Haywood. Although he was not convicted of the crime, it looks pretty clear uh, from uh, a historical standpoint, that he had a lot to do with this, uh, this bombing, even though he was not convicted. The IWW also opposed World War I as a capitalist conspiracy, which to some extent it was, uh, a stance which finally prompted a government crackdown that by 1920 had virtually uh, destroyed uh, the IWW. Now, in the end, both the IWW and its rival, the AFL, failed to organize American workers uh, against the power of American industry, one because it was too radical, the other because it was too cautious. American industrial capitalism had indeed created a new worker, but one that was incapable of protecting his interests and dealing with employers on anything approaching equal terms. For this, he would have to wait until the 1930s, and the New Deal, and an organization of unskilled industrial workers called the CIO. And of course, we'll be talking about this later in the course. And finally, expanding industrial capitalism in the United States helped create what was known as the new woman in the early 20th century. Now, before industrialization, women largely stayed home in the private sphere in charge of the moral education of their children, and this was Victorianism, as we discussed last time. But industrial capitalism created jobs in cities for single women, who before this could never have left home without being married. Between 1880 and 1920, which is the industrial takeoff period in America, uh, millions of single women flocked to American cities to take jobs in factories, but also in the business offices that the growth of industrial capitalism had made possible. These middle managers needed people to help them, and this was women to a large extent. The number of working women doubled in the United States between 1880 and 1920. In the cities, Away from parental supervision, these women enjoyed the leisure opportunities of the cities. Movies, dance halls, amusement parks, ballparks. They also took advantage of this financial and spatial independence to become more openly sexual, flouting the morality of Victorianism in a basic way. These single urban working women who were created by the new industrial capitalist economy in the United States, were known as the new woman, or the new women, uh, by this time. That's a real term of art. And these new women made new demands on American society. They demanded access to birth control, and Margaret Sanger, of course, is the activist who was most associated at this time with the push for birth control. They demanded equality of pay with men, They demanded more sexual freedom. And most prominently, they demanded the vote. They demanded women's suffrage. Now, while only this last goal was immediately realized, women got the vote uh, via the 19th Amendment to the Constitution in 1920 on the federal level, uh, the new woman did place the issue of whether a woman was completely equal to a man in all respects and also whether a woman should be treated equally to men in all respects. It placed these questions on the table in American life. And these questions would continue throughout the 20th century, ebbing and flowing over time, but never going away, and sometimes provoking a conservative backlash from men who were fearful of these independent women in the form sometimes of prohibition. We'll be talking about that in the context of the 1920s, anti-prostitution campaigns, uh, uh, and even movie censorship. And finally, these festering questions of equality would, of course, explode during the 1960s into the feminist movement, about which we will also have more to say later in this course. By 1910, then, in one form or another, the new woman was here to stay in America. And thus, the new power and productivity of American industry had created or made possible the existence of a new immigrant, a new worker, and a new woman by the early years of the 20th century. And the existence of these new immigrants, new workers, and new women had by this time created enough disorder, or potential for disorder, for class conflict, for ethnic conflict, for gender conflict, Enough so that many middle-class and upper-class Americans were legitimately afraid of a violent upheaval, of social disorder, even revolution. And these middle-class and upper-class Americans demanded the restoration of order. They wanted order. On the other hand, many American radicals, looking at all the inequities of the United States in the early 20th century, and we talked a lot about them uh, on Wednesday... Uh, uh, demanded justice in American society. They wanted justice. Now on Monday, we will see how another group of Americans, the progressives, who drew both from the ranks of the upper and middle classes, as well as from the working classes, promised to save America by giving it both order and justice at the same time. And we'll do that on Monday.